Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. And as you know, we also give you insight and analysis on all the topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and always with me, Duncan Castles. It's your questions answered this Wednesday's podcast. However, we are going to start with some news. And of course, it concerns our old friend, Valerie. Yes, VAR is making waves even when there's no games on. Uh, We have learned, the transfer window that is, that there is a potential revolt on the horizon uh, for Mike Riley and the PGMOL. Riley is due to address the Premier League stakeholders, i.e. every club uh, in the Premier League, at a routine meeting in London on Thursday of this week, in which he will be requested to give assurances that either they can fix the inconsistencies and controversy over VAR um, regarding the first 12 weeks of the Premier League season, the first 12 rounds of games. And we understand that if he cannot or does not give correct uh, information or indeed uh, allows there to be a sense of agreement amongst the 20 clubs, then it's possible a motion will be tabled at that meeting that VAR be suspended potentially for the rest of this season in order to give the authorities an opportunity to get it right when, of course, we all know they've been getting most of it wrong. This would be an incredible uh, and and also an unprecedented move um, by the Premier League clubs. But, Duncan, the fact of the matter is that VAR is not um, uh, something which is a necessity. It is a voluntary sign-up from Premier League to um, take it on board. Therefore, the idea that it might in some way um, compromise the integrity of the competition which has taken place so far with VR included is not going to be an issue. Um, you've heard as well, Duncan, I understand that referees, as in the elite referees, are also unhappy with the way that VR is being implemented and the way that they, as a group, Uh, are looking uh, to the public and supporters, broadcasters uh, alike in terms of being made to look either indecisive or foolish. Yes, I think you're you're getting the the, the chickens coming home to roost here with um, with VAR. Um, you know, we've predicted on the transfer window for a long time that this was going to be a mistake. Um, it was going to lower the quality of football. Um, that fans would not uh, appreciate it once it was in place. That it would not be well received by managers. Would, would not be well received by players. And I think now you're seeing that it's not being well received by the referees, and that's where. Mike Riley, as the senior referee in England, is in a very difficult position. Um, understand that Riley addressed referees this week and told them, um, uh, the quote I've seen is that he uh, said to them, I'm well pleased with the way VAR is operating. Um, this happening in the same week as we've seen Neil Swarbrick, um, who is a former Premier League referee who's, who's been placed in charge of the implementation of VAR by Mike Riley, go to BBC and other broadcasters and say he is well pleased effectively with how VAR started, giving himself a mark of seven-ish out of ten and saying they expected uh, these kind of issues and, uh, and, and and all will be resolved down the line and, and um, they will get VAR not only to be seven out of ten but to be um, ten out of ten, I guess, is, is um, what he is promising and what Riley is promising. That I think he has a major issue here because once you have the referees feeling that they're being undermined and embarrassed by a system that's supposed to help them 
supposed to assist them, um, you have a, a major issue. Um, I think it's it's important to note that earlier this month, Keith Hackett, who is one of Riley's predecessors as um, the head of PGMOL, wrote a very strongly worded column for the Daily Telegraph, um, the headline of which was, Sack Mike Riley and Stop Treating Match-Going Fans Like Dirt. Um, so, you have a former head referee being extremely explicit in his criticism of the man who's in charge of referees now. He talked about how standards had dropped um, hugely under Riley's reign, which, uh, honestly, I, I don't think you can argue with him on that. I think the standard of refereeing has dropped in recent years, um, even before VAR came in, and that uh, it was time for a change uh, to the man in charge and he recommended that the Premier League as the best league in the world should go out and secure the best um, head of referees and suggested that they should try and uh, get Pierluigi Colina to take over that role uh, for them. Um, I am sure that Hackett did not write that piece without consulting uh, current referees in the Premier League. So he will ha have had a sense of the way a revolt is building against Riley. So if you look at it from this perspective, Riley has his own referees unhappy with the implementation of VAR, which Riley is still defending and saying is going well. And he has Swarbrick defending and saying going well. You now also have Premier League clubs going into this meeting this week um, wanting to... Uh, here that matters are going to change and considering a motion to have um, VAR suspended for the rest of the season. Why are the Premier League clubs, some Premier League clubs thinking this way? I think it's, it's very obvious why. It's damaging the product. The, the owners of football clubs in the main in the Premier League are there for financial purposes. They've bought assets, um, a number of them, and some of the most significant of them have those assets with a view to selling them down the line for significant profit. Manchester United being one example, Liverpool being another, Tottenham Hotspur, another prominent example. You have Roman Abramovich testing the market to sell clubs. So the, this kind of... Um, long period in which Premier League revenues have increased and increased and increased and it's, and it's established itself as the most popular league in world football. It has a, has a dominance in terms of uh, market share, in terms of uh, being the league that the more people around the world prefer to watch above La Liga or Serie A. Um, that is endangered by something that damages the product and VAR is certainly that. Um, you're having controversy over not only the decisions of the referees, but the decisions of the technology on top of the referees after every round of fixtures. We've just seen the biggest game of the Premier League season, uh, hugely anticipated, huge, hugely floated by the Premier League as something that people should go out of their way to watch. Uh, Liverpool against Manchester City decided via controversy over refereeing decisions and in particular over VAR's failure to interfere in those uh, refereeing mistakes and remedy them. And um, none of this is good for football. Uh, and uh, therefore, it's no surprise to me that you have clubs asking why are we continuing with this system? Why do we have a head of, of, uh, of the referees telling the public that VAR is working very well when the public can see for their own eyes that VAR is not working well at all? They don't like it. They're um, complaining about it. Um, you know, you can't, you can't treat your audience like fools and expect uh, the audience to remain and be happy with the product. So I think this is a very interesting moment for English football and, and a very interesting moment for, for refereeing. And I, I can't think of a time, maybe you can, Ian, but I can't think of a time where I've heard of referees revolting against the senior referee. Remember, Mike Riley is a guy who, is, who determines their careers. He chooses their appointments. He decides who gets the biggest game. The reason Michael Oliver got Liverpool Man City is because he's regarded by Mike Riley as being the best referee. Um, he also recommends them to UEFA and FIFA for major Champions League games and for uh, 
Euro finals and, um, and, and World Cup finals. Remember, there were no English referees at the last World Cup. So if you're a Premier League referee and you're seeing this constellation of events, you're thinking, you know, my career is being affected by the decisions of the man who is my boss. I think that's correct, Duncan. I've never seen uh, referees openly criticise, and I say openly, um, there is a, a code of conduct. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I'm cautious to say a bit like the Cosa Nostra, but it's it's definitely a vow of omerta, of silence, whereby you don't criticise each other and you don't criticise your, your boss. And this is all pre-VAR, by the way. You would never, ever get briefings from referees, or very rarely anyway, where a referee would brief someone in the media on or off the record about a colleague or decision or something that was going on. So it's very, very unusual uh, to see uh, referees break rank and obviously brief people in the media about their um, the fact that they feel compromised uh, by VAR, that they feel they're being made to look foolish by decisions and implementation of the technology, and they feel that they're the ones who are suffering because their reputation and their authority is being compromised by the way in which VR is currently working. The fact that Mike Riley seems completely either oblivious or he's just put a brick wall up to any criticism of VR suggests to me a foolish and uh, ultimately divisive way to deal with it rather than just meet the problems head on and discuss openly what the uh, problems are and how they might find solutions to them. He seems to be hell bent on simply saying, uh, we're going to do it our way and you're just going to have to put up with it. And that's why referees are now saying, no, we've had enough. Uh, and it's one on 12 rounds of matches in to a Premier League season. So that in itself is, um, I think, significant. I think it's just as significant that clubs are going to, um, or that Riley's been summoned to this meeting of which is said, you know, a regular thing, but Riley's been summoned. He doesn't normally attend these meetings. He does attend uh, only when he's um, been asked to. He's been asked to do that uh, in London tomorrow, uh, Thursday, that is, and explain how he's going to make it better, explain how, uh, what the options are for doing so, et cetera, et cetera. And he will be questioned and grilled on this. Now, I spoke to one um, director of a Premier League club this week already, and it takes up your point, Duncan, about um, damaging the brand and the value of the Premier League. The Premier League has a bigger audience worldwide than any other league, including La Liga, which is, used to be the biggest uh, terms of audience, uh, obviously because you have South America and, and Spanish-speaking um, fans all over the world who enjoy watching La Liga. Um, in the 90s, it was uh, Serie A, which still enjoys uh, a, a good worldwide audience. But the Premier League is miles ahead, probably twice of both Serie A and La Liga combined in terms of global audience. And this director at a club uh, who is very marketing-minded said to me, can you imagine you're a punter in a bar, sports bar in Kuala Lumpur, and you're watching your favourite team, and to do that, you've had to get up at silly o'clock in the morning. But that's nice because it's a big social occasion. You've of course obviously got um, supporters clubs in places like Kuala Lumpur, Shanghai, Sydney, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you go there with your mates to enjoy the football, and uh, it's taking four minutes to review a VAR check on whether it's a goal or an offside or anything else. You're turned off by that. You you're there in the middle of the night often to watch a game and see it flow and support your team. But instead, you've been turned off. What do you do? Do you walk out the bar because you're so annoyed and frustrated by what's going? Do you go to the bar and just have a pint and think, oh, I'm not, you know, what's going to be doing? They do care about that. And I think that's something which Mike Riley and PGMOL have got to consider with regards to if the, the brand itself is being damaged, not only in the UK, but worldwide, which is probably just as important, if not even more important, in terms of generating revenue. So, again, those are three aspects which are very, very significant in what happens uh, with VR going forward. And if, if, and it is a big if, because it needs a two-thirds majority 
um, of the clubs to vote in favour of suspending. If they do do that, then that will be a massive slap in the face, both to the technology and to those who advocated it, employed the company, uh, who have supplied the technology and who operate the technology as well. And also puts a, a, a real question mark against whether or not they can get it right um, in the future, whether that's to be sometime to be in just this season or more likely, if it is suspended, to return in the 2021 season, claiming that they've resolved everything, which, again, big if, uh, in order that they can produce a consistent coherent and credible uh, way of checking decisions via a video assistant referee. Uh, the only thing I'm going to add to that, Duncan, is that just before um, I started talking, we had a siren in the background. I'm not sure if their listeners heard it. I just hope Mike Riley's not sent the VAR police to come and arrest you. <laughs> well, look, why, why, why is football popular? One of the reasons is it's because it's a, it's a continuous sport. It's a quick sport. It doesn't have four-minute breaks. Um, in the normal match um, and this has always been one of the key issues of uh, where people say well uh, video technology works in rugby video technology works in cricket it should be able uh, to translate into football they're different sports rugby is a stop start sport cricket is an absolute stop start sport so you can get away with having this video intervention between moments of actions easier in rugby and cricket and American football than you can in, in football itself. And you know, I, I've also had people on social media telling me they're tired of watching the Premier League because of VAR, um, which is, I, I think, you know, I've been on social media for 10 years. I've never ha had people saying they're tired of watching the Premier League before. This is a, and the only context I've heard it is because of VAR. You, you talk about Riley's high-handed attitude. It's interesting because it's almost as though he is taking the way he acted as a referee, which is my decision is final. I am the arbiter of what is correct on the field and applying it to something which is far, far more complex and, and important to the, the running and the future of the game. So I, I'm in charge of this. My view in VAR is correct. You will do as I tell you to do. And it's not going to work in these circumstances because, as, we, as you've explained, the referees are unhappy and, more importantly, his bosses um, at the Premier League are becoming increasingly unhappy with it. And, look, you've just got to look at the implementation so far. It, it's classic. This is also classic high-handedness from a, a former referee and, and a sort of classic English attitude, which is, We've seen VAR working elsewhere. We'll take the bits we like and uh, and we'll try and implement it in a different fashion. So no looking at the monitors, no use of the monitors. Um, not a single referee has gone to a monitor in the 12 rounds of games uh, during the, the Premier League implementation of VAR so far. The high bar... Um, which they used for nine games and then decided to go switch to a low bar, also uh, Premier League intervention. And then this, this handball law, um, which caused so many problems and we discussed in, in great, de great detail on Monday's podcast, Schrodinger's handball law, as we referred to it, um, that was brought about by the English authorities being upset for being found out for not implementing the FIFA rules correctly last season in that they decided unilaterally that any ball that went into the net off, a, off a, a, an attacker's hand should be given no goal, even though the rules of the game at that point said um, that it was a, a, a fair goal. And it found out because of the Willie Bolly incident and people were asking um, why uh, it hadn't been cancelled because there were briefings from the Premier League that it should have been cancelled and then the question was well actually the referee seemed to follow the proper laws of the game which accidental handball to score a goal is fine so the, the, the Premier League English authorities response was we will rewrite the rule and we will petition IFAB of which the FA has one of the, the, um, the I think it's eight um, total votes on a, on a rule change um, to change the rule and we got what um, I think, and what I described on Monday's podcast as the worst rewrite of a rule um, we've ever seen off the back of English football saying um, we want handball to change. 
the conclusion I take from all of this is the people in charge of refereeing in England are not up to the job. They don't think about these things properly. They don't think about repercussions. They are in the habit of saying, we're in charge, we know best, we are going to implement this and uh, be damned with the rest of you. And what results are um, messes like we have with VAR, like the mess they made of the most important game of the Premier League season on, uh, on Sunday. Well, unremarkably, VAR is not the only controversy dogging English football this week. Um, the uh, altercation between Raheem Sterling and Joe Gomez in the aftermath of that 3-1 win at Anfield for Liverpool resulted in uh, what can only be described uh, in some certain terms as a stooshy in the St George's Park canteen between um, Raheem Sterling and Joe Gomez uh, with the aftermath of the, the result, etc. And the fact that um, I think Sterling felt, and indeed our information is, that he believed he had been systematically targeted um, and fouled repetitively by Liverpool players during the match. Um, and the referee did nothing uh, that he felt to protect him. Uh, and as a result, the um, confrontation with Gomez on the pitch, in which he tried to lift Sterling up under his arms and pushed him away, saying, what are you going to do, little man, uh, resulted in Gomez offering his hand to Sterling in said canteen at SGP, uh, to which Sterling, uh, we're told, said, oh, so you're still the big man, are you? Uh, there was a bit of a scuffle, uh, so we have been told, and of course it's been well reported, now Sterling has been dropped from Thursday's qualifier. Now, we've had lots of questions on this, but I think uh, an interesting one in terms of um, what you guys would like to know, and it came from Miss Lumini, and she asks, should Southgate have made more effort to keep the bus stop in-house rather than make a statement and let it go public? Duncan, do you think Southgate's made an error of judgment here? Because let's face it, the kind of general default position of the communication department of any organisation in football, whether it be club or country, is to simply try and hope that it doesn't get out and, uh, and cover it up. And if it does, then answer the questions later rather than sooner. I don't think he's made an error of judgment in terms of um, allowing it to become public. I don't think he had a choice in this matter. I, I think you're right. Um, if if the uh, FA um, England national team's comms group had thought they could keep this quiet and keep it in-house, then they would have done so. But they would have known that that was impossible with an incident of, of that type. I don't know how um, the media first got hold of the story. It wouldn't surprise me if it was someone very close to one of the players involved who had leaked the story. But there, there are multiple ways. If it happens in the canteen. There, there are so many people who will have witnessed that incident and so many people who could potentially um, leak the story. And then it becomes about managing it. And, you know, the, the FA comms team, I think, are... Um, are much better than they used to be. Uh, they were very intelligent going into the, the World Cup and in the way they opened themselves up to uh, the print and broadcast media and uh, and gave them a lot of access to players uh, and managers and you know even even arranging uh, darts matches between the 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 players and and journalists you know famously in the in the title of our, our friend Johnny Northcroft's book about the World Cup um, he he was uh, he, he played a head-to-head -head game against Delhi Ali um, during, I think actually it was during the tournament that happened. So that and they, lost, they, we should say that we should never turn down the opportunity <laughs> to mention the fact that Johnny lost. Yes, well, I, I mean, I've played darts against Johnny a few times, and I'm not a really good darts player, but I would, uh, I'm sure I have a winning record against Johnny. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to credit Delhi Ali with any great skill in, in that victory, but. The, what I will credit the FA for was that that attempt to get the media on side, and I think it worked. I think you saw it in the in the reporting. Obviously, it was a good World Cup for England, so it was easy to have positive reporting about them. Um, but just the, even going through the tournament, I saw the difference in the in the in the the, the kind of openness and sympathy that the the media had towards uh, the England team. So. 
yeah, to answer the question, I, I don't think this is a choice. I think this is um, this is inevitable, and then it's about how you handle it in the best fashion possible. And I guess we'll only see whether he's chosen the right way. And I think it's interesting that he didn't take that decision, Southgate himself. He consulted with the team um, to ask what they, how they felt Sterling should be punished and how Sterling, how the incident should be handled. But we'll, I, I think we'll see down the line how the relationship is between the two. As for um, Sterling's complaint, I think he is um, absolutely justified in his complaint about how that match was refereed. Um, it was clear that he was being targeted by Liverpool. It's no surprise that Jurgen Klopp instructed his players to target Raheem Sterling because of his history at the club and and um, a series of poor performances against Liverpool. So if, you, if you're going to play on the mentality of a player, then it was a good option to choose, particularly as he is certainly one of the three most influential players at Manchester City at present. Um, he was repeatedly fouled. I'm just looking at the statistics here and Michael Oliver only gave two free kicks for fouls against Raheem Sterling in that match, which is remarkable given the, the number of heavy challenges that went in on him. We saw Trent Alexander-Arnold um, shoving him into an advertising uh, hoarding um, after one of those fouls or one of those challenges, which Oliver and his officials did nothing about. It's an intelligent tactic from Klopp's perspective because if you you know the way Michael Oliver referees, it's very much that English, let the game flow, try to avoid booking players at all costs, particularly in these big matches. It's the you know the the um, the Mark Clattenburg um, Howard Webb ruin a World Cup final strategy, um, which is which is popular because it, it, it um, allows the aggression of the Premier League to be expressed. But it, I don't think it's good for creative players like Sterling. Um, we saw Sterling fouled in the box by Sadio Mane with Trent Alexander also going in on him uh, towards the end of the game. No penalty given, uh, both by Oliver and by the VAR. Um, Michael Oliver managed to go through that game without booking a single Liverpool player. Um, I, I think you can understand Sterling's frustration and, and how that, when you've had so many refereeing decisions and so many VAR decisions go against you in a game of huge magnitude, that you will be angry at the end. And, and he saw, you know, Alexander Arnold move further up the field and Joe Gomez be placed against them. And the first thing Joe Gomez does is foul him. So. I, I, I'm sympathetic with, with Sterling on this one because I think that game was badly refereed and, and as a creative player, he was not protected. And I think you've got some more information on, on Sterling's response to um, what was happening during the game. Yeah, um, I was told by um, a source um, at Manchester City that um, Sterling complained about the continual targeting of him to the coaching staff at half time and asked that they go to see uh, Michael Oliver, the referee, and his assistants at half time and have words. And nothing came of that. And of course, the, the, the situation escalated when Gomez came on um, as a substitute in the second half. And also that there was more words had in the tunnel um, at full time. I think it, it, it's only natural to assume, therefore, that when players were arriving for England uh, training at St George's Park on Monday, that if it was unresolved at that point, which it clearly was, that there was obviously a tension uh, which was palpable and very, very um, predictably became uh, a confrontation uh, which resulted in ultimately Sterling being dropped for this game on Thursday night. I'm slightly um, confused by Southgate's, uh, you know, thinking on this. Uh, I think it's been well reported that Gomez did not want Sterling either to be ejected from the squad nor miss the game. I think he doesn't want to look like the bad guy in this uh, situation. And indeed, he's probably not the bad guy since it was Sterling who clearly instigated the um, what happened in the players' uh, eating area. But at the same time, um, I think Sterling deserves a little bit of leeway from everything you've um, uh, reported, Duncan, with regards to his treatment in that game and the fact that we know that that was a tactic of Liverpool's to 
effectively systematically target him throughout the game in, in order to frustrate him and, and to stop him from playing his natural attacking style and to uh, obviously create chances and potentially score against them. Um, Sterling, make no bones about it, is one of England's most important players. And I'm not saying that for that reason he should be treated differently in this kind of situation. But in my career, I've heard much, much worse stories about players fighting with each other, causing physical harm, broken cheeks, noses, uh, ribs, etc. Um, because of training ground spats, uh, dis- disagreements after games, etc. Players being held by the throat in dressing rooms because they're not pulling their weight. And while I'm not saying I can do any of that, the fact of the matter is, it's, it's a very passionate game and people do get wound up by it. And fans get wound up by it. And, and you know, Southgate was a player for many years. And of course, he was like a, is reviewed anyway to be an ambassador of diplomacy with regards to his playing career. But he himself was embroiled in a in a huge row on the evening before the last game at the old Wembley, um, when he was selected by Kevin Keegan to play as a defensive midfielder against Germany. And Paul Ince, uh, who had expected to fulfil that role, uh, confronted Keegan and uh, Southgate and the rest of the squad with regards to the fact that he had been dropped in favour of a de facto centre-half to play in central defensive midfield. And you know, that exploded. And of course, the outcome was Germany won one nil. Keegan resigned in the toilet saying he didn't know how to solve those problems. So Southgate's got his own experiences. And maybe you know, he obviously decided this is the best way to handle it. You know, let's air our dirty linen in public. I've got no problem with that because it's true. He's in the NVIDIA situation. He knows... And England is a notoriously leaky camp, partly because you've got players from different clubs. So if it was the one club, then it's more likely to stay in-house because players who leak stuff out would be found out by their teammates. Whereas if it's, you know, as you said, Duncan, there's probably up to 22 or more people in that room when this happens. So players can get away with telling their agents the agents are going to ring media contacts who will then say, you'll never guess what's just happened, et cetera, et cetera. And it is, it is much more leaky as a result. Uh, so I, I can see Southgate's MO in terms of making a statement on the Monday night, making it public, addressing it again in a press conference, which he wasn't due to do uh, on Tuesday, um, and then taking questions, but not really answering them. Um, I'm not sure what this will do to to Sterling's mentality with regards to how he feels about playing for England. I think he's a very passionate and patriotic young man who wants to play for his country. But um, despite his apology and his admission of guilt, he may well feel that he's been harshly treated with regards to being dropped from the game. Um, And I think his teammates, and look, you know, I make no bones about this either in terms of what what players feel. They'll think, oh, right, so you're going to deprive us of probably our best player when we still need a point to qualify. Um, so they will go out feeling they're a man short because Southgate decided to uh, publicly castigate Sterling um, for this when actually he could, with Gomez's blessing, kept him in the team, kept him you know, as part of the squad for the game on Thursday night. Um and that'd be very interesting to see how England uh, play. It's not obviously in terms of opposition; it's not the best. So it's you know Southgate maybe thinks he can get away with it. But imagine what, what the furore is going to be if they draw or well they, they draw they get a point, but if they lose, what if they lost? It would it's almost unthinkable. You know what the outcry will be because he dropped his best player um, in a situation where he could probably have kept him in. So. Um, Listen, Southgate has made a stance and he will be damned by it, depending on the result uh, or not. Um, but in terms of how he's handled it, well, that remains to be seen because there's no doubt he will have to face similar situations in the future. And he's now set a precedent for himself with regards to what punishment he is, feels is relevant to the crime. So we shall see how that goes. He certainly, it, it's a calculated risk. 
you're right. If if the result doesn't go with him, he will be criticised for it. And and you also make a good point. He set a precedent in terms of how how um, such behaviour will be dealt with inside the camp. Um, I should say I don't I don't condone um, what Sterling is reported to have done to Joe Gomez. Nor do I condone him uh, as apparent. Uh, a stamp or um, putting his boot on Virgil van Dijk's boot at the end of the, the Liverpool game, which was picked up by a, a lot of um, Liverpool supporters as something that should have been dealt with uh, by the officials in the game. I'm just saying I'm sympathetic to the precursors of that and feel that he um, was targeted and had... Um, uh, right to complain about the way that match was refereed, and and, and I say it's look at it, it's typical of English refereeing. You've got the the famous Mark Clattenburg um, battle of Stamford Bridge uh, when Tottenham were still in with a chance of winning the Premier League title and lost to Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, which ended up with a mass um, fight of the players on the pitch because Clattenburg had deliberately. And he's on record on this subsequently avoided taking proper disciplinary action against players because he didn't want to be perceived as the guy who had stopped Tottenham from winning the title. Not only is he on record with that, he did it in a, uh, an interview in which he was asked to cite um, a, the game that he was most proud of in his refereeing career. And he picked that game out as the one that he felt he'd done a great job of, where he deliberately not applied the rules of the game to protect his own reputation. And this was the, the top referee in English football. And that's the way he perceives the rules of the game and the way you should um, referee a game of such intensity uh, and importance. And when you take that laissez-faire attitude, which is the Clattenburg, Howard Webb, and has become the Michael Oliver way, you run the risk of injuries and those kind of um, uh, fights and aggression occurring between players that we saw um, in the World Cup final that Howard Webb ruined in that Battle of Stamford Bridge and which we saw um, subsequent to the the Liverpool Man City game at Sunday and and the referees you know this is something that Mike Riley should really be engaging with and looking at the the long term consequences of that that kind of uh, approach to refereeing but you know as we've talked about with VAR he seems incapable of of looking at um, consequences and uh, and will we'll choose some simple approach that he decides is right regardless of what uh, what happens when it's implemented. Well, we are the Transfer Window podcast, as you all know, and we're looking forward to the fact that there's only six weeks until the January window opens and we can get right stuck in, as we say, to all of the news and, of course, uh, the different goings on with regards to who will be buying who and who will be going elsewhere. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that along with Jurgen, Pep, etc., etc., we also have another famous listener, and that's Dave Moore of Dave and Dermot on Irish Radio Today FM. And Dave has texted us a very interesting question with regards to Manchester United's intentions in the January window, Duncan. And he says, with Manchester United linked with lots of players in January and approaches, would a senior centre-back be the most important signing they could make? Example, an Evans type, interestingly, because obviously he did leave Manchester United, to improve Maguire, who hasn't played well enough to match his fee yet. Now, obviously, you will disagree with the Maguire thing, Duncan, because you're a big fan and you think that he's played brilliantly. Um, who do you think could improve uh, higher Maguire if he's playing alongside him? And uh, let, tell Dave, please, because I think he sounds like a little bit, can I? He needs to be given some, uh, some assurances and confidence in what's going to happen in the last five months of the season. Well, first of all, I'm surprised that Dave doesn't agree with the, the English media representations of Harry Maguire as the, the new Rio Ferdinand and the, the new Nemanja Vidic rolled into one. I mean, that's that's what we were told uh, he was after um, his start to the season. Um, I think I think Dave makes a very good point. I think um, the defence is not sorted. Um, they still need a high-quality centre-back 
to lead the defence, who is not error prone, um, who is a lot faster than the Maguire is. Um, however, I don't see that happening. Um, United have, have spent their money on Maguire, um, that record transfer fee, £85 million. They've also spent what was a record fee for a, a specialist fullback when they, they bought him, um, uh, up to £55 million on Aaron Wan-Bissaka. So that there's a huge amount of investment going into the defence from the, the Glazers' perspective. And of course, the, the briefing from the club is that they had a brilliant transfer window that um, Lugunar Solskjaer's guidance on, on what they what and who they should recruit was excellent um, that they probably don't need the specialist director of football uh, because they have uh, started to solve the problems of recruitment so they're, they're, the line is very much we got it right in the summer um, we move on to different areas uh, of the team using Solskjaer and others' expertise to um, reapply those those um, effective and, and intelligent solutions. And they are looking, as we told you on the podcast before, for a centre forward um, of a different type to uh, Rashford and Anthony Martial. They've realised that they need a, a more physical uh, player, someone who's comfortable playing with his back to goal, who can hold the ball up to give themselves tactical options, which is amusing given at the same time they're briefing that their transfer window was so successful. Um, uh, the reason they don't have that type of player is they decided on Solskjaer's advice to get rid of Romelu Lukaku. Um, and it has clearly hampered them in this first part of the season um, with um, what, just four Premier League wins from, from 12 games, uh, spending a good chunk of the season in the bottom half of the table, um, their Champions League qualification, um, which is necessary for uh, commercial purposes and bonuses that they get from their sponsors in doubt already uh, at this stage of the, the campaign. Um, but the focus is there and the focus is in midfield. It's not on centre-back, though I agree. Um, in fact, if... if in my view, they would probably be better off um, switching Maguire for that that um, senior centre back who who could do the leadership role, um, uh, taking a loss on on the transfer, and uh, and uh, getting someone in who actually um, fits the requirements that uh, they needed and which were identified to them long in advance. Previous manager had told them that they needed to to change at centre back. That, however, is not going to happen. Um, and you can see Harry Maguire is now the captain of Manchester United. So um, uh, I'm afraid you are stuck with Maguire and his um, uh, Vidic, Ferdinand, Beckenbauer-like genius for some time to come. It's interesting, Duncan, that um, you know, I managed to fans, um, including Dave, um, are more concerned about the defence when the word amongst most agents I'm speaking to at the moment, um, I'm sure you are too, with regards to what the movement will be in January, is that Manchester United are very much in the market, not just for a striker, but for a wide attacking midfielder who could play on the left, um, which is odd because Rashford is currently starting on the left with Martial playing through the middle and Dan James playing on the right. But um, obviously the name of Wilfred Zaha comes up again, and yet again, another ironic, if that were to happen, having bought him from Crystal Palace and sold him back for a loss to then buy him for around the market value right now, 70 to 80 million pounds. Just seems, you know, like bad, bad management. Um, there's no way you can describe it as anything else. But it seems that Solskjaer is, for some reason, satisfied with his defensive options. Um, despite the fact they continue to concede goals. So it's very, very uh, bizarre that, um, you know, when managers are seen as relatively successful as a counter-attacking team, I think they showed that against Brighton Hove Albion in the win last Sunday uh, when Brighton decided to take the initiative and go at them, but were caught obviously in a counter-attack um, and, and lost the game 3-1, that... Solskjaer should be looking to improve his attacking options wide and central rather than shoring up, which is clearly a leaky defence and something which, of course, Sir Alex Ferguson, Jose Mourinho 
always believed you build a team from the back. Um, Solskjaer, of course, is a striker. Is it? Do you think it's just his mindset that he 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 concentrates more on the attacking uh, form of the team rather than uh, looking at the defence and asking himself why is it we're conceding so easily and so uh, well continuously really in terms of their uh, last twelve matches. I don't think so. I think he, he looked at the team and, and saw that defence was uh, was an area that he had to invest in in the summer. And, and look, there's no argument there. It was obvious the defence wasn't good enough. And uh, you can't argue with the fact that they spent a lot of money on it. You can argue with how they've spent the money. Um, but that was Solskjaer's decision to go for those two players. Um, and Juan Basaka, I think, is a good signing. Um, he is, you know, it's a great one-on-one defender who needs to develop to a certain extent his his positioning um, and you will want to see him being more effective as an attacking fullback but I think he's capable of both of those I think his physical attributes are exceptional and, and the two elements that he needs to add to the game are elements that can be added particularly the positional sense uh, Maguire for me is a mistake but that was the mistake that Solskjaer decided to make um, and then you clearly have this idea from Solskjaer that he wants to attack with pace um, and wanted quicker players and and therefore wanted to dump Romelu Lukaku which he was allowed to do um, and they got a significant transfer fee from Inter for him but then you see him go to Inter and score at a high rate when um, he has a manager who believes in him again and as uh, as our friend Christoph Terror uh, explained um, a couple of weeks ago, they solved a, a problem with his diet um, that uh, and his digestion that Manchester United had not spotted in the in the period he was at, at the club. So you know, Solskjaer, I think, clearly made an error in thinking that you can have a fast attack and not have uh, an alternative strategy um, because it makes it simple for opposition. If you know the way that Manchester United are going to attack, which you do, and you know they only have one way of attacking because they don't have players to bring on to to change it around if necessary, then you know um, how the game's going to be, and you can set up for that, and you can, and you're not going to be caught by surprise. And as you say, I think Brighton. Um, I did put the question to Glenn Murray on on last Friday's podcast about whether it would be an error to to go after Manchester United in the way that they went. Um, after Tottenham so successfully in in their uh, recent home game, um, unfortunately they they fell into that trap and and okay um, United's first goal was fortunate with a couple of deflections, and their second goal shouldn't have been given because there was a handball from Maguire. But it's if you go after United as a team with not as good personnel as Manchester United and, and certainly the gap between Brighton's personnel and Manchester United's personnel is probably as close as it's ever been but United have the better players in the round if you go after them you're playing the way Solskjaer wants you to play Manchester United get the first goal then they can pick you off in the break so um, I think they did make a mistake there um, but to the I what you have with Manchester United is far, far from being a rounded team and it will require recruitment for sure of different types of players and successful recruitment to fix some of these problems. And I don't think all the problems will be solved even if they do get the recruitment right because I don't think Solskjaer is good enough as a coach. Um, I don't think his in-game management is very good. I don't think his handling of players behind the scenes is particularly good and it's caused significant problems with prominent players. But they certainly have to um, add and uh, add a diversity to their squad which Solskjaer has removed in the last summer window. Well, one manager who possibly has less problems, although that's debatable, than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer coming up to the um, January window is Mauricio uh, Pochettino, um, whose club continued to struggle uh, in the Premier League this season. Uh, as you all know, we've reported heavily on the uh, different attitude that the Argentinian has had with regards to his playing staff, his mood being um, certainly very contrasting to what it was last season. 
Yeah, and also um, doubts amongst his players that he is where he wants to be. And a uh, good question here from King, who is at True Neen, N-E-N-E, who asks, Duncan, will Levy sack Pochettino if the bad results continue till January? And why won't he put his ego aside and use the players in the last contract, i.e. Alderweireld, Eriksson, Vertonghen, because clearly he needs them? Do you think that's the case, Duncan? Is he is he not playing those players because um, they're in the last year of the contract? And, of course, this key question, would Daniel Levy do the unthinkable and sack the golden child? Look, Tottenham have done this before. They have, have sideline players that they, they are worried about whether they're going to retain them or they want to sell. I don't think Pochettino's particularly done that this season. I think he doesn't really have a consistent team this season. He's He's been shifting formation and shifting personnel um, on a regular basis this season and it's just not working for him, uh, almost whatever he does. Aldo Varel's played a lot of games this season, un- unlike in, in past seasons. So, um, I, again, Christoph Terror explained to us that Aldo Varel put a special effort in over the summer to ensure that his fitness was at the highest level um, to give Pochettino no excuses not to play him this campaign because he, uh, for Aldo Varel himself, it's extremely important that he puts himself in the shop window and gets the best contract possible at the end of this season, whether that is a renewal at Tottenham or whether it's at another club. Um, on the key question of Pochettino's future, um, look, it would suit Pochettino to be sacked. Let's face it. He is um, very much, the, the, the word coming from around Pochettino is that it is the end of the road for him at Tottenham. Um, he has considered and tried to get out of the club uh, for some period of time now. Um, it never actually happened, but he was very close to becoming Real Madrid coach um, a, a year and a half ago. Um, Levy prevented him from going there. The, all the noises around him are that he is unhappy and he would be ready to leave the club. He has targeted, as we told you in the podcast some while ago, he has targeted the Manchester United job as a very prominent opportunity for him. There is significant interest in Pochettino from Manchester United. He was a, an individual that they considered before appointing Jose Mourinho. Um, he's an individual that Edward would rates highly and would see as a, as a coup if he could uh, bring him to the club as a manager. Um, so from Pochettino's perspective, you go from your suitors having to pay Tottenham a very large amount of compensation to hire you to being paid by Tottenham for being sacked and being free to join your suitor for nothing and therefore have whatever compensation money would have been due to Tottenham rolled into your new contract. Um, obviously, Daniel Levy wants to avoid having to sack Pochettino. Um, he has been in some ways one of his key assets and there's been a calculation there that they can make significant money from Pochettino when he leaves to go to another club. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, we have the question from the listener. We have, the, I'm getting the question from people in football: Is Levy um, ready to dismiss Pochettino? What is going on with Pochettino? People are asking, and people are getting ready to present candidates to um, Levy, not just as a summer solution. Pochettino leaves at the end of the season, but potentially as an interim solution if he needs to, to change things around. The league table is telling here um, they are far away from the Champions League spot and we know how important Champions League qualification has been to Daniel Levy to Tottenham Hotspur for years now. They've run their entire seasons around qualifying for the Champions League, dumping other trophies um, so they can they can focus on getting the Premier League points required in the past to um, to get that Champions League qualification because it's, it's fundamental to their financial model. So when you get in a situation where that qualification is in question, then the, 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 the decision that Levy is having to make is, um, and the calculation he's having to make is, has this got to a point where... 
I, I have to sacrifice the guy because the players aren't happy and he's not happy. He's not performing the way he can perform. The, 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 the good thing we've been on for such a long period has come to an end and a change is required at the top to, um, to get the best out of what is a very, very good squad of players. You know, there's, there's no question that Tottenham have a, a excellent personnel who should be far higher up the Premier League than they are at present. And um, I think the statistic is the last away win for Tottenham was in January in the Premier yeah, League. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. Which is remarkable um, for a club with that calibre of player to have gone so long without an away win in, in domestic competition. Well, in response to King's question, Duncan, I made a call to a, a, a very high-profile agent who has had multiple dealings with Tottenham Hotspur over the years um, just to get a little kind of, you know, dip the toe in the water and see if uh, that person had heard anything which might be, uh, let's just say, illuminating regarding Pochettino's situation. Now, while... I wasn't given any information with regards to you know, a concrete idea, would he be sacked or not. What this uh, agent said to me was, well, look, Daniel's clever in these ways. Daniel Levy, of course, that is. Daniel's clever in, the, in these ways. If he feels that Pochettino's taken the club as far as he can, and if he gets the, the real vibe from the manager that he doesn't want to be there and that this cycle of um, management has come uh, full circle and will not extend, then without losing any money, what you could do is you could put Pochettino on gardening leave without sacking him, in which case Pochettino would be paid his salary on a monthly basis mm. as normal. But there would be, because remember he signed a new deal, um, but what there would be would be a payment to Tottenham at any point when Pochettino was employed by another club. So Pochettino, rather than be sacked and take a payoff, which is a normal, of course, we know default position when managers leave football clubs, instead, he would be paid his monthly salary with a clause which says, when you take another job, then that club has to buy out your contract for the next four years, which would mean, obviously, a substantial payment to Tottenham around between 30 35 million euros. So clever and practical. Um, and Duncan, you've seen this happen before with Robbie Di Matteo at Chelsea, haven't you? Well, this uh, the example I would I would prefer here is uh, Napoli and Maurizio Sarri. That's exactly what Napoli did in order to gain compensation from Chelsea um, for Sarri when they knew that um, they knew Chelsea wanted him as manager and if, if it wasn't going to be Chelsea then it was probably going to be someone else and uh, and uh, they had also decided that they didn't want Sarri as, as coach any longer so he was put on gardening leave. He in that case had a um, an interesting release clause in his contract in that uh, the compensation a club had to pay Napoli for hiring him was far higher than the amount Napoli had to pay Sarri if they sacked him. So they were able to sort of put him in this holding pattern while they negotiated with Chelsea to secure a big compensation deal from them um, without having a, a, a particularly significant expense involved in um, if they decided down the line to sack Sarri, um, having put him on gardening leave, um, that they'd be able to do that. So I, 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 I suspect Daniel Levy's paid attention to what happened there. And um, what would be very interesting to know is whether um, uh, there is the same asymmetrical release clause in uh, in Pochettino's contract in that he doesn't receive the same amount of compensation if he's sacked as Tottenham would be due if someone else hired him. I still suspect that will be the case um, from experience and dealings. But yeah, um, that's one to watch out for. Uh, clearly, uh, there are problems at Spurs, which we have talked about, elucidated and commented upon uh, in recent podcasts. We're going to draw our Wednesday uh, Q&A 
to a close with, of course, the traditional hurrah of the Donkey Awards. And you'll not be surprised, I hope, to hear that we have decided to dedicate this to the one and only Ryan Sterling, the warrior that is probably about five foot six. Uh, and we're going to call it the Raheem Sterling No Fear Award, the way in which he confronted opponents much greater than him in terms of size and weight in Joe Gomez. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to open the golden envelope uh, just to uh, find our candidates. There we go. No expense spread, as always, as you all know. And, um, oh, first on our list of candidates is the man himself. Ryan Sterling, for showing no fear in the way he left Liverpool. I think that's quite a good one, actually. Yeah, he definitely showed no fear. Um, and neither did his agent, as I remember, Duncan. Um, I think on a, a more um, humorous note, um, Aidan Hazard has received a nomination for uh, the way he kicked a Swansea City ball boy who he believed was withholding the ball during a League Cup semi-final against Chelsea. Uh, if you remember, he got a red card for that. Um, again, uh, Google it online or any other um, search engine you prefer because uh, it's very humorous. And uh, the third one, Duncan, is the GOAT himself, Leo Messi, who um, charged into an absolute mountain of a man in Mycon during a Champions League semi-final against Internazionale in 2015, put his rather considerably less powerful shoulder into Mycon's head. Uh, but all the same, showed no fear in doing so because Mycon went down and stayed down. And um, therefore, showing that he's not just Mighty Mouse uh, as well as skill added. Um Please give us your deliberations on the uh, candidates and, of course, this week's winner. Well, uh, Raheem Sterling indeed showed no fear in, in leaving Liverpool and uh, and hasn't um, got over the uh, the consequences of it yet. He remains persona non grata in, in that city. But you, um, you have well, to say that... Less than you? Less than me. Less than me still. Judging <laughs> um, <laughs> by your timeline over the last three days. Yes, as you pointed out, Liverpool supporters seem somewhat have a difficulty in celebrating these key victories and, and have to take offence at anyone pointing out that there were some strange decisions were made in the in the uh, the, the fashion in which those uh, key victories or that key victory came about. But um, I, I, I think we're going to exclude Sterling from that because I think you can see he made the right decision. In leaving that club, um, he has propelled himself to the very top of the English game, and he doesn't have um, Brendan Rodgers uh, upbraiding him in in uh, training sessions anymore, as uh, as was and and being caught on video being uh, admonished by the great Rodgers. Um, Eden Hazard, I think that's a that's a very strong candidate there. Um, you know, no fear in, in going in on on someone. A twelve-year-old. Half his size, <laughs> half his age. Um, uh, I, I quite like the the fact that the ball boy in question uh, put hit the the training top, um, the jacket he was wearing as a ball boy on eBay after that event, and uh, apparently earned twenty eight thousand six hundred pounds for selling his jacket on eBay. Um, but that's even more than um, Josie's Matalan jacket got. <laughs> Is it? How much did how much did the match? I think I got, go got about five and a half. To be fair. Okay. Well, there you go. He's done well. He's he's a, he's a future entrepreneur. That boy. He'd probably buy a football club at some point. It's not just transfer market inflation we deal with. It's um it's eBay eBay, eBay uh, jackets. Jacket. <laughs> But I think I think the winner here is Messi. Um, I've uh, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Mike on. Uh, in fact, just before the Champions League final, he won in 2010 in Madrid, and uh, I certainly would not pick a fight with that man. He is a a unit, as we say. Um, and uh, and Messi, yeah, no fear, and maybe maybe not unconnected with um, you know that uh, famously um, the. 
the medicine he had to take because of his uh, growth deficiency as a child. He took lots of uh, human growth hormone at that stage, which is um, something that, that adds a bit of aggression to, to a person. So maybe that's, uh, that's helped him in his football career as well to take on these man mountains when they, when they go uh, the wrong way against them on the pitch. Well, there we have it. I think we've um, managed in some way to create history on today's Your Questions Answered podcast because I'm pretty sure that's the first time Leo Messi has won a donkey award. Now, given that he's got like about 100 Ballon d'Ors and a 1,000 trophies besides that, none of them with Argentina, of course, um, the donkey must take pride of place in what must be a burgeoning trophy cabinet in the Messi household. Leo, don't worry, we know you're listening. We will send it on to that wonderfully shaped football house you have just outside of Barcelona and you can put it on show and tell your kids how proud you are that you have been voted this week's donkey winner. More and more importantly then, Ian, um, we better not tell Cristiano Ronaldo that Leo's got one and and he hasn't yet. Oh no, what have we done? (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay, uh, uh, we'll have to have an editorial meeting after this podcast to decide how we can somehow fix a Christian Ronaldo winner as well. Uh, you didn't hear that, obviously. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your questions, as always. And thank you for keeping the debate going, which has been very, very feisty and lively, as I made reference to in terms of our timelines, um, giving Trent Alexander-Arnold's non-handball, even, even though he said it hit me hand uh, in the last three days. Um, but please keep the debate going because you know what it's like. Uh, it's all good. Um, we don't mind uh, getting involved with you. We love getting involved with you when you actually sort of you know, listen. Uh, obviously, some people are a little bit less uh, uh, sort of inclined to um, take on board that this is a conversation and a debate. But please, Keep going with it because we do enjoy getting your tweets. So do that at Transfer Podcast, at Duncan Castles, at Garbo SJ, as you have been doing, as always, not just in the last few days, but over the last two and a half years. Um, today's Q&A was a small uh, sort of, I guess, example of the questions we received. So if you want to continue and ask other questions, then please do so. And we will happily reply, as you know. If you like what you've heard, and we know thousands of you do, you know what to do. Go on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and of course, we all get more acquainted. We will be back on Friday uh, for the Transfer Window podcast, and of course, we'll have updates from that crucial Premier League meeting that we spoke about at the top of this pod regarding VAR. Until then, we will see you through the transfer window then. Thank you for listening. 